Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to be preparing for the Christmas season uh, by going through a Christmas cast series where we're going to be shedding the spotlight on a number of the individuals that surrounded the birth of Jesus. And I believe that each of these characters were actually chosen for a reason to display and convey to us a certain message about God. And so this morning, that's what we're going to begin doing. Uh, now, if you're new to Christianity, uh, you need to know that not all of our beliefs are equally important. Now, I know that some people might make it seem as though everything that we believe is of equal importance, uh, from the you know, uh, color of the carpet uh, to uh, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, but we believe that some doctrines are actually more important than others. And one of those doctrines, of course, is the belief of Jesus Christ and how He came to us. See, true Christians believe that the eternal Son of God took on humanity when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and nine months later, she gave birth to Jesus. Now, I'm fascinated this morning by the character that we're going to be looking at. Uh, We're going to be looking at Joseph. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at Joseph, but Joseph is an interesting man. He is Jesus's earthly, legal, adoptive father who was betrothed to Mary when she was found to be with child. Now, he is a man is interesting because he never speaks in the Bible, and you'll never find a eulogy. It never tells us when or how this man dies. Yet, we know that he was significant in the life of Jesus. He changed Jesus' diapers. Uh, he taught him how to turn wood into a table. Uh, he showed him how to skip rocks on uh, the Lake Tiberias. Uh, he was uh, a man who had incredible import in the life of Jesus. And yet, what we know is this picture of Joseph is a picture that I believe is critical for us. In fact, I believe that as we look at Joseph today, and as I've been meditating on him all week, I don't know if there could be a timelier message for us. Now, here's why I say that. You you probably over the last year have noticed that the media seems to report a new allegation or allegations daily of some rich, powerful man who has exploited not one, but many women for personal gain. Let me just think about it. Some of your heroes of the past, like uh, Bill Cosby, maybe uh, Bill O'Reilly, and more recently, Harvey Weinstein, have been men who have been on the news for the way that they have taken advantage of women. Men who have uh, produced really influential films like Pulp Fiction and Goodwill Hunting. Uh, we've seen Harry Weinstein all over the news more recently. And what we found out is that he actually spent decades luring women to his hotel room with career promises or threats. In fact, uh, one of his 28-year-old victims uh, spoke of this dilemma that the 64-year-old uh, producer created for countless women in the New York Times this week. And this is what she says. That 
when I, when I met him, you just have to understand the balance of power is me, zero, him, ten. Just like judges. What we find in our culture today is that when there's no king and every man does what is right in his own eyes, it's not good for women. It's not good for the weak. It's not good for those who are uh, the weakest and the neediest. Uh, they are those who get exploited. But catch this. Matthew 1 introduces us to Joseph. And Joseph is a different kind of man. A man who didn't use his power to exploit Mary or expose her shame. Even when he was in the right, he is just and compassionate, just like God. And Matthew 1, 1-17 to showed us that Joseph actually comes from a line of godly men and women who believed God going all the way back to Abraham and David. But in verses 18 to 25 that we're looking at this morning, Matthew actually double clicks on Joseph and the birth of Jesus. And he shows us, he shows us the birth of Jesus Christ to show us that he is more than a godly man. See, Joseph was a godly man, but Jesus was more than a godly man. He's the God man. And Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, teaches us, I believe, a very good lesson. Now here's the deal. I bet this morning you weren't thinking that you were going to come hear a Christmas message about biblical manhood, but I believe that we see biblical manhood all over the, the character of Joseph that we're looking at this morning. It's a timely message for us. It's a Christmas message. And here's what we're going to see. If you're writing notes, you can write this down. Godly men, godly men live in light of the God-man, Jesus, who removes their shame. Godly men live in light of the God-man, Jesus, who removes their shame. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to see it first. uh, Notice in verses 18 to 19, our first point, which is this. Joseph covered Mary's shame because he was just and compassionate. Joseph covered Mary's shame because he was just and compassionate. And we see that in verses 18 to 19. So look there again with me in your copy of God's Word at what it says. God's Word says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now for Joseph, as a man who was under both Roman and Jewish rule, uh, marriage was a little bit more complicated than him just looking at Mary and liking it and wanting to put a ring on it. Uh, there was more of a, a, a decision and, and a kind of commitment that was at play with this relationship that we read about here. See, in the first century, Jewish couples would have entered into a year-long betrothal period. A period where they were committed in a, a very uh, significant way to a woman uh, before they would have had the wedding, before they would have laid together, before they would have lived together. All of that preceded uh, this relationship being consummated in a time called a betrothal. Now betrothals, they were actually stronger than engagements. See, an engagement uh, was not quite the equivalent of this relationship because it required a divorce to break it. So in fact, Leviticus viewed infidelity during this betrothal period as being adultery. In Roman and Jewish law, both demanded that a man divorce an unfaithful wife during this period. And it even entitled him to a dowry if she broke this betrothal for compensation, and it legitimized, catch this, legitimized him actually stoning her, even though that wasn't commonly carried out. 
But this was considered to be a significant relationship and commitment. And if a man didn't expose the shame of infidelity, catch this, if he didn't do this publicly, he would be inviting that shame upon himself. See, Roman law considered men who didn't divorce adulterers pimps. Uh, That's the way that they actually described them. And, And Jews could have actually charged an innocent man of fornication prior to consummating marriage. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is with that in the background, you can only imagine how Joseph's heart must have dropped out of his chest when he discovered that Mary, his betrothed woman, was actually with child and it wasn't from him. I mean, he is thinking to himself, like, okay, there are all these options. I don't know what happened. I mean, you think you know a girl, right? And then all of a sudden, you find out that she's having a baby, and you know it's not yours. And he's trying to think to himself, how do I respond to this? Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit while she was betrothed and before they came together. But catch this. I don't think Joseph believed this child was truly from the Holy Spirit here. Not at this point. Not yet. See, I believe that he either A, believed that Mary was lying, or B, that she was just crazy, right? I mean, just honestly, if any guy uh, has a girl come to him and she says, look, I'm pregnant, it's not yours, but it's okay, it's from God, I, I think that that guy is going to think that, okay, you're a little bit crazy or you're lying to me. Are you, what, how smart do you think that I am? Really? That I believe that? Surely you could come up with something better. And yet here what we find is, in verse 19, Joseph... I believe, doesn't believe Mary at this time. Here's why. Notice in verse 19 that Joseph is described, and it says here, he being a just man, he's just, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, this word for shame, it can mean to expose an adulterer to uh, an adulterer in their sin. And you can see how that would fit here. But Joseph could have justly put her to shame, openly for A, running around on him, and B, coming up with a really, really bad excuse, right? And he would have been just ashamed, divorced, and even stone her according to the law. But Joseph planned to put her away quietly. Why? Because he was not only just, he was also compassionate. Do you see that? It's not just that he's just, he's also compassionate. And and those two aren't mutually exclusive. And we find both of them here in the character of the man of Joseph. He risked inviting shame upon himself rather than inflicting it upon Mary. See, Joseph, he didn't exploit and expose. He entered into and covered up her shame. He guarded and protected Mary even at great cost to himself. That's the kind of man that Joseph is. Joseph was a godly man who looked so much like our God. So godly men are are both just and compassionate, just like Joseph. Now, single men and women, I just want to encourage you, uh, especially those of you who desire to be in a relationship uh, of marriage and you're not, I want you to know that your elders, we, we pray specifically for you that you would have a godly spouse. We pray through our directories. We pray privately and together for you, for the individual members of our body. And we love to pray for those who want godly spouses, that God would give you a godly spouse, that he would provide for you. And that until that day, that you would be faithful and that he would hold your feet fast from sin. That's our prayer for you. Same prayer I pray for my sons that I prayed for them since they were born. Uh, that desire, that longing that they would have a godly spouse. The same prayer that I prayed from the time I was 10 
until I met my wife, Carrie, for me, that God would give me a, a godly spouse. That's our prayer for you. But I also want you to know, ladies, as you read this text about Joseph, Joseph is a godly man. This is the kind of man you need to be looking for. Are you looking for a man like Joseph? I mean, just look at him. Joseph is a man who is both just and compassionate. So look and pray for a guy who flexes more muscle towards killing sin and loving others than he does towards his bench press in the gym. That's the kind of guy that you want. You want a just man who cares more about the gaze of God and how God views him and whether or not he is ashamed before God than the applause of men that he can receive from others. You want a man who is also not just just but compassionate who looks to use his power to protect and guard the weak, not exploit them. Have you seen the man that you're interested in in these contexts? Is he one who protects or makes fun of the weak? Is he one who looks to protect and guard and help and leave people better than when he found them? Or one who looks to always get the upper hand? You need both. A just guy without compassion will be cruel. A compassionate guy without justice will be faithless. Now, single guys, as you're listening to this, you might be thinking, yeah, that's, you need to be looking for that. But is that you? Single man, is that you? Is that the man that you are or you're seeking to me? Are you just and compassionate? Let me just tell you, like all of us, I am sure, are failing in many ways at this. Because ultimately, only Christ is this man. But all of us should be growing and being sanctified and being more devoted to Christ in the way that we are seeking to live justly and compassionate lives with others. Brothers, that's not something that you wait till you get married to start working on. You start getting prepared now for the woman that God is going to entrust with you and to you. There's another thing that we see here I think is really important as we think about Joseph, this kind and compassionate man. And that said, if you are a young man that uh, is looking to be more mature, that's not a private project. Like You need to have other men who are around you discipling you. So find someone that helps disciple you that you can mature so that you can be this kind of man. You need to know God's Word. And when the Word leads you to the heart of God, trust me, it's going to make you more compassionate as God is compassionate. And men, uh, let, let not any of us miss this. Don't miss the vision of biblical man, masculinity that we see here so clearly. A, a godly earthly man, a godly earthly man adopted Jesus placing Jesus legally in the line of David. And Matthew doesn't tell us Joseph's exact job title, how much money he made, or how well his fantasy football team did last year. But what we do know is that he was godly first for how he treated Mary. Do you see that? Before he gets to how he responded to the Word of God, God begins by giving us a picture into the character of the man who loved and cared for Mary, even when he thought that she had been unfaithful. And he did all of this before we find him trusting God's special direct word to him. But Joseph's trust in God displayed itself in how he protected Mary's reputation even when it brought shame his way. And my guess is, this morning, that we all either struggle with being just or compassionate or both. None of us are killing it at being as just and compassionate as we ought to be. But let's be merciless men in fighting and putting sin to death in our own lives while showing great compassion, mercy, and tender care to others. Let's protect our eyes and our hearts 
and our lives while showing great compassion to others. Uh, Let's make sure that our eyes and our hearts and our hands are not exploiting women and those weaker than us, but are doing them faithful and good and blessing them. See, Joseph is the kind of man that all of us want to help us in our sin. Wouldn't you, if you had sin, want to go to a man like Joseph? A man who, when you are confronted by your sin, says, I I want to do what's just and I want to protect you and I want to leave you better than when I found you. I don't want to to expose you to the full brunt of the force of of what could come upon you. I, I want to protect you and keep you safe and love you and be compassionate because that's so much like what my God is like. That's exactly what we want. So let me just ask you this this morning. Do you have anybody in your life that can be your Joseph? That you can come to with your sin? Whether or not it's your husband or your betrothed or your spouse or your engagement, could just be a friend. Uh, better if you're a man that you have another man like this in your life. That if you're a woman, you have a woman like this in your life. That you can know that if you've been caught in great sin, even if that sin has cost that person the most, that you know that you can go and trust that they are a just and compassionate friend who will seek to help you and to leave you better than when they found you. Now, this is a great question, men. If you're discipling other men, ladies, if you're discipling other ladies, just to ask the person that you're discipling, am I the kind of person who's like a Joseph to you that you feel like you could trust to come with your darkest sin and trust that I'm going to help you out, that I'm going to love you, that I'm not going to leave you, that I'm going to try to lead you towards Christ, that I'm not going to seek to make you ashamed, but I'm going to seek to leave you better than the way that I found you towards Christ and Christ-likeness. And, and if they say that you're not that person, then, then ask them humbly, what can I do to be a, a, a better Joseph in your life that you would trust me? What is it that I can do to be that voice in your life? And if I'm not that voice, do you have that voice? Do you have someone that you could go to and share your darkest moments with? Or, or are you just of the impression that there is no other person that would understand and help you? Brother and sister, if you're in that place, then you need to start making relationships today. No Christian needs to be in that place. You have pastors and elders brothers and sisters in Christ who want to love you and help you no matter how dark things get because we believe that the light is to be found in Jesus and there's always hope. Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Have that friend. But there's another thing that we find here. Catch this. Here's the truth about this story. You ready? This story really isn't about Joseph any more than it's about you and me. See, the answer to the problem of godless men who exploit women isn't just more godly men. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' birth is profoundly more unique than any of the kids that have been born from Abraham to David to his own earthly father, Joseph, who adopted him. Don't miss this. Joseph represents the godly remnant who were waiting and hoping in the Messiah or Christ, that anointed king who would come and rescue the people of God. He is the king that God promised would save his people. And Joseph lived as a man with a plan not to be ashamed at the the coming of the Messiah. He wanted to be on that day when that Messiah showed up to be ready as a faithful remnant waiting upon him. And here we see that Joseph understood the Bible and his life actually centered on something much greater than himself. See, this story isn't really about a godly man, it's about the God-man. And that's exactly what God reveals to him in verses 20 to 23. In 20 to 23, we find that second... God became man to save His people from their sins. God became man to save His people from their sins. 
And once upon a time, people used Bibles made of paper, actual paper, cut from trees. And when they did, they would actually have this interesting little page in their Bibles between Matthew and Malachi that was blank. Maybe anybody remember those days? The days before people read their Bibles on their phones and uh, read them on their iPads and their computers. It was, it was a great day. And, and if you had one of those Bibles, one of those relics, much like this one, what you would find is there was actually a page in the middle, a blank page, that separated Malachi and Matthew. You know what that blank page represents? 400 years of silence between the prophecies of the Old Testament to Malachi and the New Testament, which was brought with Jesus Christ. And what we find here is that Matthew breaks that silence of God of over 400 years with a voice that speaks out in the form of an angel to Joseph. And here he says, Joseph is the son of David. And, and read what he says in verses 20 to 21 to Joseph, the son of David. There he says this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God breaks that silence, speaking to Joseph as the son of David. Now we know that Joseph worked with tools. We're not exactly what, sure what that looked like. He was probably a contractor, maybe had men under him. Uh, but he was uh, some kind of contractor, I'm guessing. And I'm guessing that he didn't feel much like a son of David. Uh, you remember David was that great king who was actually the greatest king that Israel had ever known. Uh, the, the, the king that actually dropped a giant with a slingshot and then ruled the people of God. And we know that probably he didn't feel much like that king who foreshadowed the Messiah, that anointed king who would save God's people from their enemies. Especially since, present day, he's just a contractor. And he's under Roman rule. But notice that God tells Joseph not to fear. Speaking probably of the angel that had come to him. But to make Mary as his wife. Because her child was from the Holy Spirit. In other words, she's not crazy. She's not lying. She's not running around on him. She's faithful. And God says, you need to marry this woman. This woman. Now, uh, let me just take a pause. Guys who are single, uh, please don't tell a woman that she needs to marry you because God told her or told you that she needs to. That's unfair leverage, right? Like God told me you need to marry me. Well, if I don't know, I'm disobeying God. That's not fair. And I don't, he didn't tell me. Why didn't he tell me? I think it's good that God leads us to feel that we ought to marry a certain woman. I think God works in those ways. But we need to understand that this is an utterly unique kind of thing that's going on here, where God is actually preparing the way for Jesus, the Son of God, who is about to take on as eternal God, human flesh. Very unique thing that's happening on here. This is not normal state of affairs. But we should. We should, if we're pursuing your single guy and you're pursuing a wife, you should pray. Pray that God would lead you in the right direction. should seek counsel from other people. Seek counsel from other godly men. You should pray about it. Uh, you should uh, also think uh, about that woman and, and the things that actually are drawing you to her. That's a good thing to do. 
Uh, I don't think it's bad to like think she's pretty and like, hey, think you're pretty. I think that's an important thing. You don't want to come to her and say, hey, you're godly. I'm not attracted to you, but you're, you're godly and that's good. And so I want to marry you because God says I should want a godly woman. It doesn't matter that you're not attracted to me at all. That's not the kind of thing that you want to say. But you don't want to lead with that, right? You, you want to lead with those, those hidden character traits that look like God. So when you're thinking about the woman that you want to marry, you want to be thinking more about, because it's easy to see that you're attracted, the question is, is she godly? Is she faithful? Is she selfless and sacrificial? Does she, does she show up and, and spend time with the people of God sacrificially, not for what she can get out, but what she can put in? Is she a servant? Does she have a servant's heart? Is she compassionate towards others who are weak? Does she like to help those who are unable to help themselves? Does she love the Word of God? Is she teachable? Like that's the kind of woman you want to be, you want to, you want to find yourself married to. And you want to look for. And she's pretty, right? And so you want to lead with that. You want to lead with the godly things that you have, that have drawn you to her. And then, and then you can talk about the other things that the world is so drawn to. See, that's better than leveraging God told you to marry her. I mean, isn't it such a better thing to be able to say to a woman, I'm not marrying you just because God gave me like an explicit mandate to marry you. I'm marrying you because I want to, because I see so much of God in you. What a great way to approach the woman that, that God might have for you. And see, here we find that God is telling Joseph to marry Mary in a very unique way. And here's why I say that. It's because Jesus, don't miss this, is the greater Son of God. And what we find here is utterly unique. See, God providentially placed Joseph, Joseph, this godly, just, compassionate man, at the epicenter of his redemptive plan in Christ. This is incredible. Who's Joseph? Who knows? And yet God has providentially chosen this man, this godly man who nobody knew about, to make himself known in the most unique way he's ever made himself known in the history of man. And he is not to fear, but rather to marry Mary because her son isn't from adultery. He's from God, the Holy Spirit. Now, other religions will talk about uh, a man or, or a God uh, having children with other humans. Uh, we, we see that all over like the you know, mis, uh, mythical historical figures and the way that children are erupted from that. Uh, they're a lot more graphic than this. What's interesting is how much this text doesn't describe it. It just says that it happened and that it matters. And Luke's account from Mary's perspective really isn't any clearer. So Luke 135 says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, the point here isn't how it happened, but that it happened and what it means. And just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of the first creation in Genesis 1, here the Holy Spirit brings about a new creation in the womb of Mary. And Jesus, the Son of David, is also the Son of God par excellence. There is no Son of God like this Son of God. See, earthly kings were called sons of God because they imaged their gods on earth. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh so that He is both fully God and fully man. Now, this is, again, like stepping on the edge of like what our minds are able to understand. Many theologians of the past have spoken about this. Uh, one, the church father, Chris, uh, John Chrysostom, said, This day he who is is born, speaking of the great I am, and he who is becomes what he was not. 
In other words, I think the clearest that we can get about here where deity takes on humanity is that it's, it's, it's as though the eternal Son of God, who has always been with the Father, didn't take away from Himself, but rather added to Himself humanity, something that was not of Him before. So that this eternal Creator, you know, from Colossians 1 tells us all things were created by Him, through Him, and to Him. Here has actually entered into that creation to redeem those God has called him to. And so here we find that God took on flesh. And here's what that means. This son is a unique son of God who is greater than his fathers Abraham, David, and Joseph. He is, there is none like this man who has been born. And I love to talk about this. In fact, I get excited when Jehovah's Witnesses come up and knock on my door. I get so thrilled about it. Now, sometimes I get bothered because, like, you know, people are sleeping or I'm tired. I'm thinking, like, kind of have better things, to, like, more important things I feel like I need to be doing. And then I'm reminded that these are people in the darkness and need to hear the light. And so we start talking about Jesus, right? And who is Jesus? Like, is he the created one or is he the uncreated one? And they always love to go to Colossians and talk about him being begetted. And I always love to go to Colossians and talking about him as creator, who was the one by whom all things were created, through whom all things were created, and to whom all things were created for. And they never liked that. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had ladies like, I was loving talking about the gospel, and they start running away from my house. And I'm chasing them. You need to repent and believe Jesus. You, you, are, you don't understand. You don't believe the gospel. And they're running to their car, and my neighbors are looking at me. And it's like, there's Josh again. Yep. I love to tell people about Christ and the greatness of the Son whom there is none like. And friends, when you have Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door, they need to know that they don't believe the Gospel that that brings them into the love of the Father. They need to believe in the unique Son who there is none like. He is the uncreated One, the eternal Son of God, the only One through whom we can receive salvation. Take time to tell them about Jesus. God's greater Son also came to deliver us from greater enemies. He's a greater son who can deliver us from greater enemies. See, God's greater son came to deliver us from our greater enemies in verse 21. You'll remember that he comes from a long line of, of giant slayers, right? So Abraham slayed giant slayers. David slayed giants. But verse 21 tells us that Jesus came to deliver us from a greater ancient enemy, our sins. See, sin caused the first unashamed couple. Adam and Eve, Genesis 2. They were naked before the Lord and unashamed. No shame before the Lord. And yet, we find in Genesis 3 that their sin called them to run and cover their shame as they disobeyed God. See, this was unexpected. The fact that Jesus came to actually defeat sin. Most Jews were hoping for a Messiah who would come and deliver them from Rome. They were looking for a Messiah that would deliver them from Babylon or Persia or or whoever it was during the day politically that was overshadowing them. And yet, here what we find is that Jesus comes and says, I'm the Messiah and I've come to deliver you from your sins. They're thinking, wait, okay, I get the first part. The second part? Like, what about Rome? And yet, here we find that Jesus came and said, your greatest enemy is your sins and I've come to defeat your sins greatest enemies. See, Joseph faced great enemies living under the Roman Empire with rulers like Herod, who we'll find next week in Matthew 2, sought to kill all of the firstborn children of the Jewish uh, people. 
But God says he's come for the greater enemy, their sins. In other words, God says, don't miss this, Joseph's greatest problem is internal and not external. It is spiritual and not physical. See, it took a God-man to save a godly man from his sins. And here's what's so interesting. The angel of the Lord immediately says, Jesus' virgin birth and deliverance of sinners fulfills Isaiah 7. Sound familiar? If you haven't been with us, we've been in Isaiah for the past three weeks. In Isaiah 7-9, to talking about this very text. Now, if you haven't been here, let me just remind you of what was going on. See, Isaiah 7, here he quotes, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 7. Now, we've been looking at 7 to 9, so we know in Isaiah, so we know that God promised his son, this son, as a sign to Ahaz, king of Judah, who was also a son of David 700 years before. This is 700 years before this promise was made. Now, Ahaz was at the same time fearing other nations, Israel and Syria, who had threatened him. And God told Ahaz to simply do this, trust me and do nothing. Wait on me to deliver you from danger. Just trust that I am able to save you. But what did Ahaz do? He refused and looked to Assyria for help. And so God turned his face from Ahaz and Judah and Israel. In Isaiah 8, we find that the first Emmanuel was born. Meher Shalel Hashbaz, which means swift to the spoil. It means that this was going to be a day when God was with us, Emmanuel, and it was not good for us. But in Isaiah 9, we see that we were promised a second and greater Emmanuel that was to come. And this would be God with His people, not for their judgment, but for their salvation. And He, you'll remember, would be called in Isaiah 9, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Jesus is God's Son, who is literally God with us to deliver us from our sins, which separate us from God, and therefore to bring us out of our shame before Him and into His pleasure. Now we understand that Jesus is that eternal Son of God. He was the one who was wonderful counselor. He counseled with the Father and the Spirit before time began to make a plan for you and me how to redeem us out of sin. He is a wonderful counselor. Not only that, we understand that because He is mighty God, we can trust that He is able to save us, not just from our physical enemies like Syria, Israel, or Rome, but from spiritual enemies like sin, death, and the devil. And those under the new covenant receive the blessings of the everlasting Father in the face of this eternal Son. And He longs to do good for His children. So God called Solomon the man of peace, but Jesus is the Prince of Peace, who not only came to bring peace with men, but also to bring us peace with God through Christ's cross. So you see, the eternal Son of God entered a cradle so that He could deliver us from our sins at the cross. God raised Him from the dead to declare Him to be God with us and for us. And to declare that we have peace with God if we put our faith in this King. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know what you need to be delivered from most? Do you really know and believe that you need to be delivered most 
from your sins. Some of you might be here this morning and think to yourself that you need to be delivered from all kinds of things that are real and present dangers. Maybe you need to be delivered from a spouse that doesn't love you like you deserve. Or maybe you feel like you need to be delivered from the crank of a boss that you have to go into work every Monday to. And you maybe this morning are fearful of political enemies. Maybe you really fear that Iran might drop a nuclear bomb on us. Or maybe you're just worried about sickness and that sickness will win. All of these are real threats. But when the greater Emmanuel dropped down, he said what we needed to be delivered from most is our sins. There was sickness all around. There was real and present political danger. I'm sure there were family issues at home. Chiefly, his relationship with Mary right now. And yet in the midst of all that, he says, here's what you need most. You need to be delivered from your sins, and I'm the only one that can come and do that, and I'm going to do that through the Son. See, he came to deal not just with our shame before men, but our shame before God. And he came to save us to the uttermost, so much so that Paul says in Romans 1, 16-17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because God's no longer ashamed of me. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You hear that? Like I don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it means that God's not ashamed of me. Uh, The impressions that men have of me, that my friends at school have of me, the impressions that my friends might have about me because of the way that I befriend others that others won't befriend Like, it doesn't matter because Christ has come and He's not ashamed of me. And if God's not ashamed of me, I'm good. We also find that not only that, we are told a little bit more about shame and what this means in the Gospel in Hebrews 4.16. Where not only has our shame been removed, because our shame has been removed, He says, let us therefore come boldly or without shame under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me ask you, do you, when you come to the throne of grace in prayer, are you reminded of this Emmanuel God with us who brought us peace with God so that you don't have to be ashamed with Him before Him anymore when you come before Him with your sins? But you can know that you can come boldly. You can come boldly before the throne of God knowing that He is listening carefully, not begrudgingly to your voice because of what Christ has won on your behalf. Do you know that? You see how your prayer life should be changed because of the shame that Jesus bore for you on the cross. And it was just a small picture of what Joseph did in bearing the shame of Jesus. How much more did Christ bear the shame for us at the cross for you and me, pushing back the wrath of God that we deserved? And we even boast, those who were shameful and hiding from God, now actually boast that there's even something Uh, that we are happy of being shameful in the eyes of the world because we are no longer shameful in the eyes of God. I love what Hebrews 4.14 goes on to say where he says, "But but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me again. I'm going to do that again. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Do you see it? All of a sudden, we find that because of the gospel, this instrument of the curse and shame has been transformed in this instrument that we actually boast about. We are bragging about the cross that the world is ashamed of. Why? 
because of what Jesus did on that cross. He pulled back our shame and He gave us a new name in Christ. Friends, our reality has been shaped and, and taken and in such a way that we'll never understand fully. And the rest of eternity will be us understanding what Christ has won and accomplished for us. He has accomplished something that is beyond our comprehension. The shame that has been removed and the name that has been given is so much greater than what we can comprehend. We get the rest of eternity to figure it out. And praise God all the way. I'm just asking, are you willing and happy to take on the shame of the name of God who drew near to you in your shame to remove your shame before God? Which would you have? Shame before men or shame before God? Sometimes drawing near to God will mean that men and women draw away from you. But drawing near to God always means that God draws near to you. So says James. But just consider Joseph's response in verses 24 to 25. Catch what Joseph does. He responds the right way to the shame of the gospel. Joseph, third, chose not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to trust and obey God. Verses 24 to 25. I love this picture. But think about this. From a worldly perspective, we know that two men received an Emmanuel, right? Ahaz was a sign for him. And Joseph, signed for him. Two kind of different men in the eyes of the world. Ahaz, from a worldly perspective, was the king of Judah with a pretty good job, right? I mean, he's king. He had fame. He had fortune. And yet he refused to trust God and thus rejected the first Emmanuel. See, Joseph on the other hand, was a godly guy. A contractor living on a, a no-name, uh, in a no-name village? Nazareth? I mean, can anything good come from Nazareth? Who was also a man who was called just and compassionate. Who received a promise that Mary carried the second and greater Emmanuel. And this promise of deliverance seemed even more incredible than the promise that was made to Ahaz. And yet notice how this man, this carpenter, responded in verses 24 to 25. There it says, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And she called, he called his name Jesus. Did you notice that God's angel, he didn't have to coerce Joseph in the same way that the prophet tried to coerce Ahaz to believe God. Joseph was a simple man who trusted God and obeyed His voice. He believed in Jesus and he obeyed God, trusting that He would deliver him from his sins. Why? Because God said so. And he believed the voice of God. Ahaz might have seemed great in his own eyes and in the eyes of his worldly counselors, but Joseph trusted in wisdom from heaven. He trusted a heavenly counselor, God's Son, to save him from his enemies. And he knew that he couldn't save himself from those enemies. So the question this morning for those of you who have not put your faith in Christ is this. Will you put your faith in Jesus like Joseph? Or will you turn for him like Ahaz, imagining that you can save yourself? Don't leave, please, this morning. If you've not put your faith in this Son, this this beautiful Son, this wonderful Counselor, who is also mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. If you've not put your faith in Him, don't leave here without doing that today. He is your only hope. He is your best hope. Turn to Him and you will remove God's shame and you will become a child of God who receives all of the love that God has for His eternal Son. See, He came so that you can receive the pleasure of God and you have not, no reason to be ashamed before Him 
based not on your merits, but based on God's. Because did you notice the one thing that Joseph did? Joseph didn't save himself. Joseph wasn't saved because he was just and compassionate. Joseph was saved because he believed in Jesus. He trusted the Son. So are you trusting the Son? If not, don't leave here without putting your faith in Him today. Let's pray.